Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about puzzle games. We're talking about the puzzle games where you leave your house, you get off you know, your, your butt, get off the couch, get away from the table, you get outside, you go see some sites, you go check out uh, some really cool things around town, outdoor puzzle games. And we're talking to Geert Syllabus from Amsterdam, from Mystery City Games. Geert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Now we talked uh, on the on the pre-show. Uh, I cannot pronounce your name. Like I don't think I have the the vocal aptitude. The the Alabama tongue of mine is just not going to do it. How do you pronounce your name correctly, sir? For the good people listening at home, uh, Dutch people would pronounce it Geert. But I actually grew up abroad, so I'm used to hearing it butchered, and I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> cool. Well, I appreciate you you know offering me some grace and saying I can't even roll my R's. I've been in Honduras for like seven years, six, I don't know, a while. And I still can't roll my daggum R's. And so my tongue is just, uh, it's not cooperating with it's me in these. Things you, you grow up with, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and my kids, my kids are great at it. And they all, like, almost like make fun of me. They'll come up to me and just do the rolling R sound and smile and laugh knowing that I can't. And someone's like, ha ha, I can do this thing that you can't. Like, mm-hmm. And so I, I typically, you know, just push them down or something to, to let them know that I'm still in charge. But <laughs> but anyway, let's get into like who you are. You know, I'm excited to talk about these mystery games. I was looking at your website earlier today, just kind of getting ready for the show. And you've got some really cool stuff going on, some really cool things you've created, the way your game works and how you have to run around Amsterdam and finding clues and all that stuff. I'm excited to talk to you about that stuff. But first, let's get your bio. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. I am Geert Syllabus. I got into games themselves in college when a friend i think like most people introduced me to settlers of Catan, and i thought what's this this is weird and then for the next few years we played every day to the point where i cannot play that game anymore i love it and other friends love it but uh, i choose other games getting into game design came just from playing lots of different games loving their little quirks and i started working on some sketches of board games with a couple friends but they never really went anywhere and then this citywide puzzle game started to uh appear as a concept and then i worked on it with a with my current partner and we finally got it live yeah very cool and so like what are we talking about though when we say when we say outdoor puzzle game what does, what does that mean exactly let's get a good little working definition yeah we didn't really know when we started either so it's it's like a treasure hunt and a scavenger hunt and an escape room mixed together a bit like the da vinci code you have puzzles to solve around the city you go to different locations you use the history and the architecture to unlock locks and ultimately solve a mystery. And if you can think of a way to squeeze that into one sentence, I will let you write copy for our website. <laughs> Absolutely. I love the idea though. Like if someone says, Hey, what, like, what kind of game is this? You say, Hey, have you, have you seen the Da Vinci code? It's like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I have it a bit on our website. Have you seen the Da Vinci code? Have you seen national treasure? Have you seen yeah. Indiana Jones, the last crusade and uh, try to get people in on it like that. Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. And, you know, giving people an anchor of saying, you know, that thing you've seen that you thought was really cool in the movie. Well, you can you can do that, too. You can kind of be part of that uh, chase, that treasure hunt as well. I think that that goes a long way with getting people 
to understand, first of all, what you're doing, but also kind of get them excited about it or get them kind of immersed in the experience, which, I mean, th- these kinds of games are experience games, right? It's not just sit there and think and then play a card. Like, it's your experience. You're running around, you're doing things, you're un- unlocking locks and, and you know, solving clues and things like that. And I think uh, just anything you can do to immerse people more is definitely what, what you want to do. Has that been kind of what you've been really trying to do is, is build the experience? Yeah, to get people to buy it. I remember the first escape room I ever went to we got there and the whole story was, oh, you know, we, we started renting this space and we were doing some digging and we found this room and it was this architect. And I was sitting there like, really? Like I bought it just because they were selling it. And I was like, of course not. This is stupid. And so now when I yeah. introduce people to this game, yeah, just build the world and give them everything they need to suspend their disbelief because people want to fall in. So by the end, they're really in on it and they're really playing along. And uh, yeah, people want to be immersed. And we've been quite successful. Very happy with it. Yeah, this actually reminds me of one of my favorite uh, vocabulary words. One of the very first vocabulary words I teach my 10th graders as they come in every year in August. It's on the first vocabulary sheet. And that word is verisimilitude. And it's just basically the uh, the belief that it's real. Right? It's, it's creating this, this idea that this could be a real place. Even if it's science fiction. Even if it's like totally obviously fake. Totally obviously fiction. It's still something that... that people buy into the reader buys into the viewer buys into as this this seems like a real world like this could be real like even though deep down i know it's not like you're saying with the escape room oh, we know that they didn't really do yeah. but they could have you know and then creating that that suspension of disbelief through that verisimilitude is such an amazing thing that games can do and especially games like yours where you're actually you're, you feel like you're running around town and, and solving a case and doing different things and so yeah, i'm excited to kind of talk to you a little bit more about that in a second but first why? Like, why make one of these types of games? Give me your kind of designer brain background on why you wanted to jump into this style of experience. It all started, actually, someone reached out to me uh, in my other work. I worked for many years as a tour guide in Amsterdam. And someone from a hotel came to me and said, can you make a treasure hunt for kids? We have a lot of guests who come with kids and they don't have much to do. So just an activity set for them while their parents are exploring the city. And I thought that was a great idea. And then I did nothing with it for a long time. And then I started working with my partner as a treasure hunt for kids. And after a little while, we realized that we didn't have kids and we didn't know kids. And then what was a reasonable puzzle level for them? And then at one point as a test, she said, she pointed at a child on the street and said, okay, how old do you think that one is? And I said six and she said 11. And then we realized we didn't know anything about kids. Then we did our first escape room and we realized, oh my we hadn't done it before. We realized puzzles. This is really what we're doing is an escape room that's outdoors. And uh, and then we kept going. That was really a revelatory moment for us because, yeah, I don't know why I hadn't done any escape rooms since before then. Yeah. And so what do you think it is about escape rooms? I mean, they, they've just blown up in popularity. Like they're all over the world now. And I mean, just tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of escape rooms now worldwide. So what do you think it is about these these rooms, these games that really draw people in? I read somewhere, and I can't remember where, but they say a good puzzle is one that makes the solver feel smart. And I think people like to feel smart. Also, in an age where everything is digital, to have an analog experience is super cool. And to and to go into this world, when you go into an escape room, they've just set up these conditions for you, and it's really fun to escape into it. And it's just so different from any other thing we have. You know, Playing video games doesn't quite bring it up. Playing board games, you sort of look up at the table and you're not in the world anymore. But in an escape room and in a game like ours, every moment, you know, it's 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 fully immersive. And that's really fun and a good escape from reality. 
Yeah, definitely. And I love how escape is kind of used twice. You're you're escaping the room, but yeah. it's also an escape. Like you're escaping from reality. You're you're immersing yourself yeah. again. You escape to the yeah. room and from the room. Yeah, absolutely. Whoa. It's a really interesting way to think about it. It's, it's also you typically most time most people do escape rooms with people that they're friends with, people they love, people they're related to, people that they want to have a really good experience with as well whereas maybe game night is like that but maybe not right I've, I've played lots of games with people i barely knew i was at conventions or at game night and, and you know strangers basically and it's like oh okay and you end up playing and it's fun but it's the, the fun is really hinging on the game and not so much the interaction at the table because if you don't know people but typically you do escape rooms with people you know that you're probably pretty good friends with and so i think that also helps with the experience as well this is actually something i was talking to a guy about uh, with legacy games, we were, we were just pausing why legacy games tend to be so highly rated on Board Game Geek, and one of the things that came up was, well, typically you're going to play a legacy game for a lot of times, right? 10, 12, 15, 20 times, boom, heaven, you're playing like 100 times. <laughs> so uh, you're probably going to do that with people that you enjoy, people that you're friends with, and that enhances the experience, not just the game, it's also the people at the table. And so I think the escape room has that advantage as well, where people typically play with friends. And if you're going to be running around Amsterdam, you want to do it with people that you know and love, right? Exactly. I we recently had some people playing our game who run an escape room in Texas, and they were telling us how in some places in the states, people will play with strangers. So if you're going to an escape room, you'll book two tickets, but it fits eight people, so they'll put six more strangers in, which we don't do in Europe. And I find we tested once with people who didn't know each other, and it just doesn't work because when you're playing with your friends, you really need to be able to be mean to each other you know to be like okay i see what you're doing but you're an idiot and you're wrong so we're not going to listen to you for now because we need to go this other way yeah and that works well with friends of yours and that's something you have as well with the uh, cooperative games on board games so that's why games like you know pandemic legacy then you're really working with people and uh and that's always nice too i think people enjoy the experience of succeeding together that's why i actually really got into cooperative board games as well because i got tired of being so angry and mean at everybody by the end of the night. Yeah. That's a really good point though. You know, it, it helps, it helps if someone knows that they, that you love them when you look at yeah. them and say, yeah, that's cool, but your idea is stupid. <laughs> you, you don't take it as harshly as just some random. And we know that thanks to Twitter and thanks to Facebook comments and YouTube comments, how when strangers say things, it, it just comes off differently than when a friend says maybe the exact same words. Uh, and exactly. So it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about. Well, your games are very, very historically accurate, historical base, historically based. And so tell me about that. Like, What's your process of research and figuring things out and making the game just as close to history as possible? It is a challenge because at some point you're, you're going to have to face a decision where it's, do we do the historically accurate thing or we do the more fun thing? Uh, so it can be a bit difficult. Because of my background as a tour guide in Amsterdam, I knew a lot of the stories. And part of the impetus was to come up with a essentially a, a tour that I didn't have to be there for. So trying to find a narrative and a story to tell. Amsterdam has a very interesting era in the 17th century. It was the richest city in the world. And uh, so we wanted to play in that era. I had learned about a particular Amsterdammer who is the solution to the first game. And I'd found his house. And I was surprised that for years I'd walked by there and I'd given tours around there and I didn't know that house was there. So this game started as with the finish line. This game started with the finish line. So it was, let's lead people to this place. And we worked back from there. Because we didn't know anything about this person and about then the secret society that 
the game takes place around, which is also historically accurate that we learned from our research. So it's really just starting with an endpoint and in one way peeling back layers, in another way adding layers on to create this uh, full game. Yeah, definitely. I love how your background as a tour guide basically just prepared you <laughs> to do this in a really interesting way, a way that I could never do, right? I don't I don't have that that background at all. And so I would just be kind of winging it, whereas you could say, no, no, there, here's, here's the locations and you have a love for the history and the, the dates and all these different things. That's really, really cool. And so, but at the same time, uh, we were talking before the show, so you guys are on TripAdvisor, right? Where people will see you on TripAdvisor and say, oh, I want to do that while I'm in Amsterdam, you know, on Tuesday afternoon or something like that. And so did you also take an approach of trying to get people to see as much of the city or as much of the cool places in the city as possible along with the game? Was that kind of also a, an idea that you were working from? Certainly. So the game follows part of a route I used to take with my walking groups. Uh, so we really want to see certain big squares or cool historical details. And uh, so it was really part of it was to build, you know, it's, it is different than a walking tour, but it is also a great alternative to a walking tour. You're going to see a lot of the same stuff and get a lot of the same history, but with this added layer of puzzle and storyline attached to it. And uh, so, yeah, we definitely, some places we had to sacrifice really cool secret spots, but if the door closed at 5 p.m., we didn't want to limit the times where people could play. Another time there was a museum that had a free gallery, again, closed at 5 o'clock. So uh, we had to give that one up. But definitely we're, we're picking routes based on what are cool spots they can go to. We've done that with our first game and with our next games as well. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And one thing we were talking about earlier was, you know, your your main audience isn't necessarily gamers, it's travelers. And these travelers aren't necessarily gamers at all. And maybe they are, maybe not. And so like walk me through your your kind of tweaking of the game and making you know, certain decisions about the game, knowing that these people might not be gamers whatsoever. This might, they just might be travelers coming through wanting to say, you know, wanting to see part of the city. Yeah, that that's that's what took the longest in the testing stage of our first game was finding the right balance where it's fun but doable. Uh, my partner Emily, who is much more competitive than I am, her policy was, you know, if you're not good enough, you fail. And I was more like, I want people to win. I want good reviews at the end. I want happy right. customers. Um, so we found a nice balance there, but it did mean finding a way to uh, make it work for everybody. We use a slightly pejorative term. We call it idiot proofing, but it's just you know, any opportunity where people can do something wrong, they will at some point do it. You know, it's like Murphy's law. So we, uh, that's what we did through testing. If someone can misinterpret this instruction, change the instruction. If they could take this wrong turn, uh, eliminate that possibility. And so the puzzles became, we, we, we learned as well what kind of puzzles don't work, like riddles don't work at all. Some people love them, they get them. Some people don't get them and they'll just never break through. So the puzzles started to become more like activities do this thing put these pieces together so you can decode this thing which gives you the number to this lock so a series of steps instead of sort of logical leaps yeah definitely and it, it also makes sense because you like you're as a designer you're not at the table and so you can't you know adjust the difficulty based on the level of players so if you get one group who just has no idea what's going on versus another group who like are mental giants and like super smart and really understand logic and stuff like that like you have to kind of find that balance of somewhere in the middle i guess of because you don't know the type of player that's going to be playing and what their kind of mental you know aptitude is right yeah definitely we've had people who are really into escape rooms and games and puzzles and they play and it might feel a little bit light for them so that's where we try to work in the storyline to make that the adventure itself is fun. So it's about finding a good balance so that they enjoy it and that the uh, that the traveler enjoys it too. And so far, we've been pretty successful. 
Yeah, that's awesome. How long did this game take to kind of come to fruition or become what it is today? From our first test, when we built a prototype and we thought, great, we'll test it, we'll fix the few things that'll be wrong, and then we'll launch. Between that moment and launching was two years. <laughs> so we were yeah. very wrong about it, being quick. Uh, Emily and I were doing this very much as a side project. So we both had real jobs. We were meeting twice a week to keep it going and at certain points more frequently. And yeah, it just took that long though to make all the changes yeah. and then test it. It's very hard to find testers as well for a game like this because if I have a board game, the same people can test it three times. But with this game, once you've played it once, you're uh, you're off the list. Yeah, definitely. With this kind of a game, it's not like you can say, hey, come over to my place on Saturday afternoon for, from 2 to 4 and I'll buy some pizza and, and we'll hang out. Yes. Like, no, this is a little bit more of an investment from people because they're going to have to you know, run around the city. And like, how long does the game take to complete on average? It takes about two hours. Okay. So it's not crazy. Although a few days ago, no. Well, that's the thing as well. We learned our first version took close, I think, to four hours. Then we were working on one that was about three hours. And people playing it said it didn't feel that long. They really liked it. But it's really hard to sell someone on playing a three-hour game. Mm -hmm. So we cut it down to two hours. And uh, that's worked out. Some people take a bit longer, which is okay. We do put a soft time limit. You have two hours. But we tell people if they're taking a bit longer, that's fine. Although someone broke the record last week. They broke the record at 52 minutes. Oh, nice. Which is pretty incredible because that's... Like the route takes about 35 minutes to walk without doing right. any puzzles. So. And I guess that's another thing is you don't know what people are wanting. Like maybe some people are just wanting to walk and see the sites and do this thing. Oh, and we're also doing the game where other people are like, we're doing this game. And if we see stuff, fine. <laughs> yeah. We can re usually tell at the beginning what kind yeah. of group if we they have. just take off running. <laughs> yeah. When we have competing groups, you can really see it. They're like, group A is going to win. No, group B is going to win. Yeah. That's and right. we like to see that. It means I get to go home earlier as well. Right. Now, what were some of the other issues in playtesting that you ran into? Well, this is something you don't really run into with like board games. The tower that's been standing there for 400 years that has a beautiful golden date written on it that you use as a puzzle suddenly is covered in scaffolding, and they're doing two years of renovation mm -hmm. on it. So there <laughs> goes that entire one. Um, yeah, things changing in the city. Walls being painted over, graffiti is gone. We had in Amsterdam this street of beautiful old squatted buildings that one day the city shut them all down and built fancy apartments. So the city evolves around you. And while some things we can trust will be there for a while, sometimes the city just takes stuff away. A good example, in Amsterdam, we have a very famous I Amsterdam sign. And in what, a few months ago, the city council just took it away one day to the next. Luckily, we don't use it. But if that were our puzzle, go to the I Amsterdam sign and do something. It can be a bit of a pain. Yeah, it's a really good point. You you constantly have to be checking your design to make sure it still works, you know. And like with a board game, it's like, all right, this design is basically finished, and that's you know, it's a wrap. Whereas your game, the 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 board, so to speak, changes <laughs> sometimes, yeah. and so you have to kind of go back and redesign things, or take things out, or add things in. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's like playing Monopoly in one of the train stations is suddenly a shopping center. Like, oh gosh, right? <laughs> yeah, surprise. And I guess do you like yeah, you have a, a, you know, once a month where you walk around and just kind of make sure everything's the way it way it's supposed to be, or like how does that process work? I think through whittling down, we now have bits that aren't being changed. Although, and also, no, but people play often enough that if something were to get covered, we would find out pretty quickly. So it would be the day of if there was really a game-breaking problem, which would then be a pain to fix because our games, our books are bound, which takes a week, but we would find a temporary fix. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk more about the, the books and the components in a second. But first, 
you know, one of the things I talked to several people at this point who make escape room games or puzzle games and things like this, and they always talk about the hint system being such a challenge in creating a good, working, solid, helpful hint system. So tell me about your hint system and kind of how it came to be. It is a big challenge. Um, what we landed on in the end was to give everyone a telephone that they can use to call us if they need help, which works now. Of course, once we're at a certain size, it's going to be a bit more challenging to, uh, to manage that. But for now, the phone system works. Also, the phone has a second function, which is works as a... Uh, the second function is that it works as a GPS tracker, so we can tell where they are, which is one of these ideas that took way too long to get to. But it's so nice to know where the groups are and not suddenly be surprised by, you know, they're finished or they're going the wrong way. So we have a tracker on them at all times. Uh, we're developing a system whereby through the phone, they'll have a... It'll look like an app, but it'll just load a website with a form that'll click in and give them the clues that they want. Yeah, that's a really cool way way to do it. And I guess if you're going to do an outdoor game, you, you need something like that, right? Because they're, they're not in the room. You can't just like step in and like, oh, hey, look at this. Like, they, they might be across town. And so you need a that's way right. to communicate that's you know a little, a little simpler. Yeah, like in an escape room, you'll have a camera on you. Someone's watching or yeah. a phone where they can call you. You're doing something wrong. For us, if people start doing it wrong, um, we might not find out until much later. So we have a good system now. Also, we know when That's they're nearing right. the end, we set up a geo a geo fence so an alarm goes off so I know when they're getting close to finishing. So I need to get back to the start point slash end point. Right. And I guess with this you you have to be there for the start and for the finish, right? You can't just you can't just put it on autopilot, so to speak. Yes. So for now we have to be there for the start and the finish, which was a for me a design development from giving tours where I had to be there the whole time. So now to only yeah. be there start and finish is definitely a bonus. One of the next design challenges we have, especially as we plan to expand to other cities, is how to do it without being there at the start or the end, which is, mm. uh, it, it has a fun, a series of fun design challenges to it. And, but now every decision we make with our new games is the more we can remove ourselves from it, the, uh, the better it can grow. Yeah. Like that's the only way to scale it. I mean, there's only one of you, right. you know, and, and if you're wanting to do this in London or Paris or wherever, yeah. you, you can't teleport. And so, yeah, the figuring out the, the scalability of this kind of game is definitely a huge challenge. Uh, what are some of the things that you've been looking into as far as like video, like videoing yourself? And uh, There are two of us. So we have uh, my partner, Emily, and I. Yeah. So we can uh, double up slightly. For in terms of videoing and stuff, um, that would be for the introduction. Well, a simpler way of doing that, if there's an introduction they need, give them a sealed letter that they have to read. And uh, that often does a good job. We did work with video in the past, but it's one of those things where unless you do it really well, it looks terrible. So we, uh, hmm. un um, until we're at the point where we really want to drop a lot of budget onto a video, um, we we just do it uh, old analog. Keep it simple. Right. Also, if you make a video and then you change one thing in the plot, need to spend another few grand to get the crew together and the lights and so on. So uh, <laughs> yeah. we like to be um, flexible. Yeah, that's a good point. You probably you probably should go the uh, podcast route where you can just kind of splice in new audio. <laughs> it's a lot easier and a lot cheaper. Yeah, that could work. And then there's different things as well. So one thing at the end of the game, we have to reset the game, which used to be a lot more convoluted. And now we have it quite simple. You have to do this and that and then put the locks back on. And if we're doing it, we're confident it'll be done pretty well. It's once you have someone else doing that who is less invested, there's a chance they do something wrong. And if you don't do that well, it damages the game experience. So that's yeah. a decision with future games as well, is to make a game that, you know, we don't need to reset. We don't need to set up. We don't, uh, 
people can play and a uh, sort of disposable version of it. Oh, and also something that they, um, when they play it, they can't then hand it to someone else to play so that you sort of a bit like the legacy games, you know, you rip up the cards as you go in order to, uh, to proceed. And, uh, so that you can't just secondary market. Right. All right. Well, let's keep talking about components. Tell me, I mean, you've got like really cool components in your game. You already mentioned the book and the padlocks and stuff like that. So tell me about like some of the really cool components that you have and tell me more about this book, especially. And then let's talk about kind of how it came to be the process, the testing, the, the manufacturing, you know, talking to China and things like that. Like walk me through the whole process. It started out with the idea that you're playing around a, a journal or a book ended up being what we call the tome. So this ancient text. And it's gone through many iterations. It's been a real challenge to figure out how to do it because when we were just starting out, we weren't aware of what the possibilities are. Now we're more aware of anything we want, we can find someone to do it. But there were points when we were talking about, oh man, it'd be great if we could have a bound book, but we don't know how to bind anything. And then it literally took months to go from that step to let's Google book binders in Amsterdam. And we found these great company that does it. Local place, they have a parrot in their shop and uh, they bind this stuff really authentic and really nice materials. And then the next step was the paper. We got this really nice old paper, but Amsterdam rains a lot. And uh, so that was a challenge for a while. We had to replace books every time there was a downpour. Then we discovered this waterproof material that's really nice. Now we start making it like that. So it's gotten more expensive, but now the books are sturdy and pretty strong. Uh, there are pieces that go in the book that you have to put in the right order. For a long time, we struggled with how to make them stick. Would we use Velcro or some sticky backing? And very slowly, we realized that magnets are a thing, and they're like magical. So we started using magnets. Uh, but when we started using the new paper, we couldn't put magnets between the pages. So uh, we made this new piece that the magnets go on. You to get this very satisfying click stuff going. We have a lot of pieces made out of wood, which we, uh, through a escape room designer in Amsterdam, he has another business that has a laser cutting component to it. Uh, he let us use his laser cutter and engraver. Um, and so we've been able to make really nice props like that. And then some props we find at the flea market. So I had this idea of a puzzle that includes like a little copper scale where you have to weigh stuff. And then I couldn't find one. And I went to the flea market and they were there. So we bought a bunch of them and there's a puzzle that uses that. So it's a combination of finding cool things and building puzzles around them and designing stuff and figuring out how to get it made. Although a laser engraver goes a really long way. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And now we were talking earlier, you've had groups up to 90 people do this. And so like when you when you do that, you have groups of five, right? And so you would need 18 different sets of these things, right? So how many, like, how many sets do you have? We currently have 18. We had oh, well. a, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, we had a request for a team building with enough lead-in time. So if we have enough lead-in time, we can really expand to whatever people want. The setup is, we always think we have more time than we do. It always ends up with the night before with us and the glue gun and just getting really sticky. And uh, But we get it done. But we had a, a request for team building for a huge group. And so we built it all up. And so we have 18 sets now, which means yeah, it's all the little things you don't think about when you do it. It's like, yeah, okay, we'll make 18 books, but that means printing 18 copies and getting 18 uh, copies of the inserts that go in and 18 little apothecary scales, which were harder to find than we thought. Um, they also need the phones that they play with. So every expansion takes a bit of work, but we uh, but we get it done. Yeah, definitely. And as far as the, the five-person 
team limit. Walk, walk me through there. Cause I, you know, I know there's a lot of escape room board games, escape room games in general that, you know, 10 people can play it, but it's really like four people playing and six people just kind of hanging out. And so like, help me understand like how you decided five people is the max number per team. Like, tell me about that process. I think it came about, it's sort of natural organic size of people traveling together. We do get a lot of couples playing. So it definitely works with two people. We even have people playing by themselves. But we did notice through testing, once you get past a certain number, as you said, there's people doing it and people standing on the edge, trying to get in, being bored. And we thought five was a very natural number. And then also six was a very natural number to split at because it's fun to play three versus three. So we came to that quite quickly and quite naturally. And it's it worked out well for us. We do allow groups of six if they insist, um, but it's definitely more fun, I think, to compete because it adds that extra component, which is the competitive side. Yeah, definitely. Any other things that you learned through playtesting or any other ways that the game evolved based on you know people actually playing it? Oh, sometimes we do a playtest and things we're really proud of, things we really like, and they just don't work. And we'll just redesign from scratch. We had that with the new game we're making now, which we're developing, which we hope to launch in the next few weeks. But sometimes you have, you know, you'll have three tests that go really well, and then one test where they don't like it, and you just want to throw everything out and start from scratch. And you have to fight that urge to a degree, but there's also stuff you do want to fix. Um, so there's a potential after every test to start the game from scratch, which really frustrates my partner Emily because that's happened more than once where. I come back and say, I have a new route. I have a new concept. Instead of it being like this, we're going to go like that. And uh, often it's her job to talk me off the ledge. Something specific we changed through testing as well. Oof, I mean, it's just so much. Um, okay, one, one thing with the first game, I really like the idea of every puzzle ends with uh, the next page number you go to. So it's a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book as well. So, okay, we finish this one, go to page 81, Page 81 is this location, got to go there, solve the puzzle. Problem there is if you screw up the first puzzle and it tells you, you know, you did the math wrong, you go to page 71 instead, suddenly you're totally on the wrong track. And, uh, and the game doesn't work from that moment on because there was no feedback mechanism. And from there, we came up with the idea that we really needed a way that you know at every stop that you have succeeded. And that's where we came up with in the first game, this box with five locks on it. And so when you finish the first puzzle, the first lock should open and it's a progress bar. And it's a way of letting you know you're doing well and that you can continue. Very simple mechanic, but it's, uh, that came about from testing. Yeah, that's a really cool way to handle it because one, like you're saying, it lets people know for sure, hey, this lock opened, therefore we know we're, we're correct. Uh, but it also gives a, a player that, that tactile, you know, I'm, I'm getting to do something. It's more than just the, the mental. I'm also kind of physically opening the thing. And that's one thing, you know, people that make legacy games talk about. It. Like people love opening boxes. They love opening things. It gives them yeah. that endorphin rush. And so you get to oh, add definitely. that in, into your game as well. We've thought about it as well with like, what are other feedback loops we can get? Uh, what are other ways to let people know they're right? You know, log in on the thing and put in the password. But nothing gives you quite the joy of, you know, getting the numbers in the right order and click and it opens and everyone gets this endorphin rush. And uh, yeah, it works really well. And opening boxes, yeah, to see what's in the next one. Even just seeing boxes, it's a lot of fun. When we start the game, we do the intro, and we pull out this box with five locks on it. About half the time, you get an audible, ooh, and that makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
Now, as far as the, the components or the playtesting, uh, you know, the puzzles and things like that, what other things did you try that just did not work? Like, if I'm going to make one of these games myself, what would you tell me as far as, hey, uh, you already said riddles, don't do riddles. Like, what else would you say, yeah, don't do that, I, I tried it, it doesn't work? Uh, it's hard to say. Sometimes we do things that don't work because we didn't do them well enough. So, for example, I think the choose, you know, figure out the next page to go to as you play thing can work. But because we didn't also have a feedback loop, you know, if you if you had another way of checking that page 81 was the correct answer before going there, uh, that could still work. Uh, things that we cut out completely. We did, on our first test, had the idea that where you go to a bookstore and you look under a book and there's an envelope there. Uh, I'll definitely give you the advice of tell the bookstore you're putting stuff under their books because someone <laughs> saw me put it there and they thought it was anthrax. And uh, yeah. that's what they said, anthrax. That was quite a leap to make to anthrax. So they took it away. <laughs> Didn't call the police or anything, but uh, yeah. So make sure you tell people that you're testing near them. Otherwise, they can get a bit freaked out. Um, we did have one puzzle that involved measuring the narrowest house in Amsterdam, but people live there. So try to uh, you want to stay on good terms with these people that you have to puzzle near. And I guess that's a really good point of, like, if you're going to be doing these things in public spaces, you probably need to let people know like have you had to have conversations with people and say hey this is who we are it's what we're doing and just kind of like walk me through like what you have you've had to do as far as museums or houses or things like that just to just to build relationships with people so they know you're not just a bunch of creepers wandering around their backyard up until now mostly it's been based just from the design angle of how to make it so we don't have to have those conversations uh we're not mm. quite so busy that it's like why are there 800 people a day walking around this monument. Also, Amsterdam is already quite a busy city with people walking around. So uh, it hasn't been a problem so far. We would love to work with museums to design games for them. And that's definitely something we're hoping to do. We've been in discussion with the Amsterdam Zoo to make something with them. And that would be fantastic. But yeah, tend to uh, just make sure you don't bother the residents so that we don't have to have conversations with them at all. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what were some of the other challenges that you've run into, either for the first game or for the game that you're working on now? Uh, a big challenge is the weather. In Amsterdam, it sucks. It rains all the time and only slightly less in the summer. And in the winter, it gets quite cold as well. So our, we really thought that in the last winter, we would just pretty much shut down for a couple months. And I was fine with that. But people kept booking. I was very surprised. People who want to play, people who like this sort of thing, they'll play in the winter. You know, mm -hmm. give them an umbrella. They'll show up with their gloves. And uh, they were happy to do it. So that was a really nice challenge that sort of solved itself. Like, we were very busy this winter, which was really nice. Um, other challenges, well, to do with scaling. We, so we now have our start point, our little secret headquarters where we start the games. We only moved there in uh, November. Before that, we were playing, we were running everything out of our homes. So every single game meant taking a set from my house to the start point in the center of the city and then essentially waiting around for them to finish and then grabbing the stuff back. It really helps to have a location where they come, pick up the stuff, they go and return there at the end, which means I can stay hard at work without these uh, you know, 10 minute bike rides attached to each end. Yeah, absolutely. And so tell me about like TripAdvisor. I never even thought about a game like this being on TripAdvisor for someone to be able to search and find. Like, help me understand. Was that something from the beginning that you guys jumped on as a, as a marketing opportunity? Or like, how did that happen? As a tour guide, um, TripAdvisor is really important. So it's something that was just very natural to be on. 
uh, it's very popular in Europe. I don't know how much it's used in the States. I know that a lot of people in the States use Yelp, which is almost unheard of here. And uh, so it made a lot of sense to be on TripAdvisor. So we were on there right from the beginning. Then we quickly rose up as well, because something people really check when they want to do stuff. And we're listed under the uh, fun and games in the things to do category. And uh, we are a game, and we are fun, and we are something to do. And that's how a lot of people find us. We get a lot of uh, referrals from TripAdvisor. Yeah, and I bet there's not a whole lot of other things happening that are, that are similar to you, right? No. In our category, it's escape rooms and a place where you can get traditional Dutch costumes and take your picture, which is also, I have to say, a lot of fun. Highly recommended. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we're the only one doing exactly what we do there, which feels, which is nice. In December, because we were consistently getting good reviews, we were we suddenly hit number one for about five days, which was really great. And now we've dropped yeah. back down to number two, which we're very happy with. I like number two. It gives a bit of the underdog feeling without the pressure of what makes you guys so great. And I can be like, no, 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 we're just number uh -huh. two. Well, very cool. Congratulations on that. Now with the new game you're working on, is that just going to be an option? Like I can do game A or I can do game B or how are you presenting that? That's right. So we'll just have two games. Uh, we need to figure out how to put it on the website, uh, these two options, because we also realized that we can launch a game and then develop it as it goes. So it doesn't need to be 100% it needs to be completely finished, but it doesn't have to be in its final state just yet. So you'll be able to choose between them. The new game is set at the end of the Second World War. So it's got a 1940s theme, and you have to discover the history of the resistance during the occupation here in Amsterdam to uncover another historical mystery, another true story. So you'll be learning about the resistance and some of the things they did and solving an actual mystery about diamonds that went missing at the outbreak of the war. Yeah, very cool, man. And how do you, like, how do you, going back to the research thing, how do you figure out the the new game stuff, like what, what you're going to do, the story, the theme, like all those things, like help me understand your, your game design process for that. So part of it is theme and part of it is um, mystery, you know, the actual mystery that you're trying to solve. And these are real life mysteries. Like they're like actual yeah. things that really did happen. Yes, exactly. So I love history and I, are, I surround myself with people who love history. So we love to share these stories. And so with the story for the new game, I just heard about these, this, this mission to recover the Amsterdam diamonds because Amsterdam has a long history as a diamond trading center. And with the invasion of the Nazis, they wanted these diamonds. These were industrial diamonds. So they were very useful in the factories that they were going to be using to build the war machine. So then the British actually sent over agents to try and recover the diamonds to stop them from falling into the hands of the Nazis. And it was a cool story. It was a true story. It is virtually unknown. Even if you Google it, this is where we came into trouble. There's not a lot of real information out there. And uh, so we really had to do some digging. So that was a cool story. But before that, I just knew I want to do a story about the Second World War. I had a vision of a bag, military sack, satchel with tins and... Uh, all these props you can use. Uh, I played this video game called uh, Papers, Please. And I thought something like that would make a great puzzle where you have to take fake ID cards and check them out. So it really came from the objects and you know the beautiful graphic design of that era and the props you can make from it. And then we found a really cool story to go with it. And so that one came together quite uh, naturally. 
Yeah, that's really cool. Are there any other themes or any other stories that you're looking forward to, you know, down the road with other games? Yes. The one after this is going to be a sort of graphic novel noir look set in the 1980s when Amsterdam was a, a hive of scum and villainy. And you have to solve a murder. Uh, well, you have to solve a crime. A body has been found on the street and you are the uh, smoky, gruff detective who's seen too many of these to care and uh, solve, the, <laughs> solve the mystery. And that one uses another mechanic entirely with different cards and scratch-off stuff, scratch-off stickers. So you choose which puzzles, uh, which clues. You choose which clues you want to look at by scratching it off. And that's how we score it at the end. How many places you visited, how many uh, clues you had to open. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, especially again, like for a couple hours on a Saturday, you know, when we were just going to be hanging out at the hotel, but it's like, oh no, we could go do this. Like it's just a really cool way to spend some time, see the city, but not just walk around. This is one thing I've always run into with like exercising. I hate just going out and running like with no real purpose other than to run, but you give me a ball to chase, like put me on a basketball court or a football field and like, let me run and like chase people and chase the ball and go, you know, all that and try to score points. Okay. I'll do that for, for hours and hours and hours. And I feel like that's a really cool way for you to kind of tap into that as well. Like some, a lot of people don't just want to wander around the city, but if you give them a purpose and then they can kind of do both things at the same time and have a lot more fun you know, doing it. That's a very good point. So do you have anything else to add? Any other challenges, any other things that from playtesting or from research or anything that you want to want to talk about? Um, I remember listening to an episode of yours recently where someone talked about how good it is to have always a, a second thing you're working on in the background. And I really like that. And I really worked out for me because then when we're working on these games and it gets to a point where we're ready to test the next one and I can't, like I'm not allowed to change anything in the meantime, that's when I can go and work on the new murder game, which doesn't have any of the restrictions or any of the pressure because we don't need to launch it soon. So that was really a lot of fun yeah. to constantly have... Um, different challenges also to uh yeah it's important to see what's out there and you never know where you're going to get the next good idea so i buy a lot of puzzle books and there's a lot of cool new ones like journal 29 the sequel that just came out um things based on that they give some good ideas and then i found some really good puzzle books for kids from the 90s uh, and some good ideas came out of there as well but it's so important to try things out and to experiment and to test stuff my policy is with ideas, we never say no. We just, uh, if you want to say no, you should always give an alternative so that we can uh, mm. build forward. Because I work always in a partnership. And, uh, I find that it helps a lot as well. Some people work really well alone, but for me, it helps to have someone there to encourage more work and to limit the crazy. Yeah, definitely. So what are your closing thoughts? If, if you were going to talk to somebody, give somebody advice who's maybe working on one of these types of games, or maybe they're listening to this going, man, that'd be really cool. I could do that for my my town. I could do that, you know, kind of come up with these ideas. Maybe they love it. What would you, what advice would you give that person? First advice would be contact us because we are super open to franchising. Um, but generally, yeah, find the stories. Um, Emily, my partner, she, her new hobby whenever she meets someone is tell me your favorite story about this town. When she's, she travels a lot for mm -hmm. work as well. And then, yeah. Talk to people. Someone knows something really cool. Someone knows that little secret yeah. monument, the little tile on the wall, the little plaque that says who lived here. And uh, you'll find some really cool stuff out there. And yeah, it's, and it's all around you. I mean, maybe I'm a bit spoiled living in Europe where we have tremendous history. Some people live in cities that are 20 years old. There's always something cool going on. And uh, just be creative. But most importantly, build it. That was the biggest help my partner gave me when we started working together. I met with her. I said, I have all these ideas. We can do it like this or like that. And she said, all right, just build a version. And then if you want to add the other stuff later, add it. But most importantly, 
make something, make it. So uh, just start building it. Yeah. And if if build the simplest version you can think of, you can always add to it. You can always take away if you need to, but just get going. Otherwise, you know, and anyone can have ideas. Let's say uh, you got to do something with them. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a really cool point about how, like just talking to people, especially people who've been around a city for a long time, they, they know the little things that Google doesn't know, right? All the little, little kind of, uh, native knowledge about things. And I actually reminded of growing up. So the, the house I grew up in, I've spent uh, up until I was probably a teenager, like 14, 15. Uh, it was a house my dad actually restored uh, that he had bought from some people and he had gone in and gutted and just redone. And it had built, been built in like the 1910s, 1920s. I mean, it was super old. And there was a place on the wall where the family, and this is kind of middle of nowhere, Alabama, but a place on the wall where the family had written down the date that they had had to leave the homestead because of the Great Depression and had to move somewhere else just to survive, just to make it through, you know, just to live, basically. And then they, whenever they moved back X number of years later, they wrote down the date. And, and, and it was this really cool piece of wood that, that he actually recovered and saved. And he, when he redid the kitchen, he had it on, on the kitchen wall as this really cool, and it was in pencil. And he kind of, he did some stuff to like make sure it was, it was, saved and it was going to last. And it was just a really cool thing in our house that, that had, had this history, that had this thing, you know, that no other house has, right? Uh, and I was, it's just a real cool thing to, when people would come over and they would see something like some, some dates and like these little things written on the wall, like, well, what's that? And, and my dad could be like, oh, well, let me tell you the story about these people who lived here in the Great Depression. And it was just a really cool thing. And every city has that. Yeah. And so finding those things and, and turning it into a game that people can experience and enjoy and engage with, it's just a really cool concept. And, and I'm excited about what you guys are, what you guys are doing, you and Emily. And, and I hope you just keep up the good work and I hope it moves to other places. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever be in Amsterdam, maybe one day down the road. Well, please do come, come play. It'll be our treat <laughs> to have you, uh, to have you try it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I look forward to it if I'm ever in, in that uh, part of the world, um, but I'm hoping other people take on this kind of mantle of, of wanting to do it in their, their, their cities as well. Cause there's so much history that, that I hope doesn't get lost, you know, that just some really cool, cool stuff. So thank you guys for, for doing what you're doing. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll expand to uh, Honduras. Expansion is in our plans. So Honduras is not the first on the list. So <laughs> oh, well, I'm right. deeply offended there. I can't believe that you know, the <laughs> wonderfulness of Tegucigalpa would not be a uh, top three at least. But uh, at the same time, there's a lot of history here. Right. Uh, it's a lot, a lot more, maybe a few more challenges with uh, the different things happening here. But um, but anyway, hopefully people are listening to this and thinking, man, I could do this. Because you could. You, you could definitely do this. If you're listening to this, you could definitely make this happen uh, as a game for your, sure. for your time. Sure, we can help. Don't forget us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, again, excited for what you guys have uh, coming down down the road. And uh, good luck with all those projects and, and all those cool new ideas and then all the things coming together and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you very much. It was Thanks a lot for having me. I've been a big fan of the show. I can't wait to hear what you're coming up with in the future as well. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?